talking about uh, this month in January here at Midtown East, we're talking about our vision as a congregation. And I wanna be very clear. I'm not trying to sell you season tickets to Midtown East Nashville. That is not what this is about. This is not about trying to get you, trying to manipulate you to, to commit a little bit more of your time or your money into my vision for this church. God help us. Because that is not something that is worth giving your life to. That what we're talking about this morning is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that is something that has that is something that is that that is something that is worth giving our lives to. Like those twenty men who are racing their Formula One cars, that it's consumed all of their lives. That we're talking about that kind of vision. That we as individuals, that we as a community of people, would be captured by by this vision of what is good and what is worthwhile in our lives that would drive us to that same kind of devotion that we find in these race car drivers. Not to make ourselves great, but to be a part of, of the work of our God in the world uh, who we know to be great and worthy of our worship. But that's what we're gonna be talking about this morning. That's what we're gonna be talking about all month is and really, that's what we're talking about every week, isn't it? That, that, that we're talking about this vision that has captured our hearts and our minds that we believe is worth giving our lives to because we have a God who has given his life for us. So I'm gonna ask Julie to come up. Julie is gonna read our scripture for us this morning, and this is out of Romans 1, uh, six, verse 16. Okay, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, I feel like we're used to us reading just whole chapters of scripture. So can you just read it for us again? We've got some, you can read it five more times. Sure. We've got so much time. Just one more time would be fine. One more time. One more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would, uh, that you would make this verse true about our lives. Uh, Lord, our lives as individuals and our life as a community here in East Nashville, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel because we would know its power for salvation for those who believe. Uh, would you open our minds and our hearts, Lord? Would you capture us with the vision that you captured Paul with? even this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the focus of this verse is on the gospel itself, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So we've got to talk about this morning, what is the gospel, right? And that's going to be where we spend most of our time. We're going to talk about the content of the gospel, and we're going to talk about the power of the gospel. So if you're a note-taking person, there you go, Okay the content of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And then we're gonna end on talking about what it means for us to put our faith in that gospel, to represent it in a way that is unashamed. 
content of the gospel, the power of the gospel, what it looks like for us to be unashamed of the gospel. So let's talk about it. What is the content of the gospel that Paul is talking about here? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So the word, the word gospel in Greek means, uh, does anyone know what it means? Good news. Okay, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard that, right? Gospel is good news. And in a more kind of technical sense even, the gospel is specifically good news of victory. It's a good news of, of victory. Uh, so a little bit of, a little bit of uh, historical background here. Do you guys know where, uh, where marathon, the word for a marathon comes from? Okay, so there was this battle in like four, in like, it was in 490 BC, okay? When the Persians, which was this massive empire uh, in, in, in the ancient Middle East, was coming to invade uh, the area of Greece. And specifically, they were looking to conquer the city of Athens and the city of Sparta. So if you've seen the movie 300, that kind of like gives you a little bit of context of what we're talking about. It's, it's that time, right? It's that series of battles. And the Persians came with this massive military force. They're the biggest empire in the world. It's, it's kind of like a Star Wars type of battle, like the evil empire versus the rebels. And what happened at the Battle of Marathon is that the Persians were defeated. This tiny group of Greeks defeated this massive army. And, and after that defeat of the Persians, what happened is that one of the Greek soldiers ran back to the city of Athens to tell them the good news. And that run was approximately 25 miles which is where we get our 26.2. And he gets there, and he, and he yells out. This is, this is the story, at least. He yells, victory! And then he falls over dead. E. That's how I felt after running a marathon, but that's a different story, right? Uh, but, but the story is meant to communicate that the news of, of the victory in that battle was so great that this man would run as fast as he possibly could to let his countrymen know the good news that had just happened. One of the kind of dictionaries that we use to, to define biblical words, it's, it says this about the messenger who brings this good news, that the messenger appears, he raises his right hand in greeting and calls out victory in a loud voice. By his appearance, it's known already that he brings good news. His face shines, his spear is decked with laurel, his head is crowned, he swings a branch of palms and joy fills the city. Sacrifices are offered the temples are garlanded. A competition is held. Crowns are put on for sacrifices. And the one to whom the message is owed is honored with a wreath. And that's kind of the force of this term for good news. For victory in battle. And that's the term that the gospel writers and that Paul himself appropriates to describe the news of the gospel because the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ's victory over death. But that's what the gospel declares is that Jesus Christ has defeated death itself. That the battle has been won. There's this sense, right, of overwhelming joy, of celebration that we get when that news reaches us, this good news of Christ's victory over death reaches us. And that victory we know has been achieved through Christ's resurrection. That it's Christ rising from the dead that finally defeats death. And it's Christ rising from the dead that's not only the instrument of that victory, but it's the promise of what our victory will look like. 
that's the hope of the gospel. That in the same way that Jesus trampled over death in his resurrection, that we one day will also experience resurrection. And that the victory over death is not just a victory for us, that in fact it's a victory for the entire universe is what Paul says later on in Romans. Let's listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. This is just a few chapters later in the book that we're in. This is Romans 8, 19 through 22. It says, for, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That what Paul is telling us is that our entire universe, every aspect of creation, has been subjected to decay and death, to a sense of futility. It makes me think of those old cartoons where people who are in prison have those, like the ball and chain attached and they're kind of dragging it around. And Paul's saying that's true about all of creation. All of creation is, is chained up to decay and death. And that because of that, there's a futility, there's a corruption that all of creation experiences. Chaos, right? Entropy, this dissipation of life energy. It's a failure to reach its purpose. It's what I, it's what I think of with a medical diagnosis, diagnosis failure to thrive. Right, that's, that's a diagnosis that's given to children who are failing uh, for a whole host of reasons to live up to the potential that they have as human beings. And that's true not only for us as people sometimes, but what Paul is saying here is that's true for the entire universe, that there's a failure to thrive. There's a failure for the universe, for all of creation to be what God created it to be. And the, the promise of the good news of the gospel, the victory that Christ has won over death, is that all of creation is going to be released from this kind of decay that all of creation is gonna be set free, that all of creation is gonna finally find the purpose for which it was made. And the victory has already been won. That Paul sees himself, he sees us as the people who, who get to announce that news first, that the victory has been won and that it's on its way to coming into the city. And it's not just true for the creation, but it's true for us. That Jesus has won that victory for you and for me. And what he tells us, what Paul is talking about here and what the scriptures are clear about is that that victory has already come in your heart if you are in Christ. That you have been set free from sin. That you've been set free from futility. That you've been set free to become who God created you to be that we get to experience that now here in this life and that we get to look forward to Christ coming again where creation will be set free and we'll be set free to live in that new creation with physical resurrected bodies just like our resurrected Lord. Is that good news? 
Those are some very small knots, okay? Yes, is that good news, right? That is good news, isn't it? And one of the things that is best about this news is that victory has been won for us. That there is nothing that you or I have done that have contributed to Christ's victory over death. That Christ won that victory himself. And that means that there is nothing that you can do to take away that victory. That it has been accomplished, totally accomplished for you and on your behalf. That that has been God's plan all along. It's the, that Jesus' resurrection, him accomplishing that salvation was God's plan all along and it has been completed. That is the content of the gospel that Paul here is unashamed of. And he goes on, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. The gospel is the only thing in all of scripture, the only object that is called the power of God. It is the message of the gospel itself that changes people. There's this famous old preacher, his name is Charles Spurgeon, and he said that the gospel is like a cage lion. You don't have to defend it. All you have to do is let it out of its cage. Which means the gospel, this good news, it's not good advice of how you can improve your life. Although it will change your life. It's not a fuel or motivational energy to get you all stirred up so that you can go out and change your life. Although it will give you new purpose. No, the gospel is the power of God. But it's that gospel that we believe changes us. It's the vehicle by which God works in our lives. It's like the difference between a screwdriver and an electric drill, right? That a screwdriver is this tool that can get things done, but getting things done uh, with a screwdriver still relies on my power to be able to, to turn the screwdriver. And if the things that needed to get done in my house were limited by my power to use the screwdriver, there are a lot of things that would remain undone, right? But the drill has power in and of itself to do things that I can't do with it, that I can't do on my own with the screwdriver. It has power in and of itself. That is the gospel, that the gospel itself is powerful. message not of what we have done but what God has done for us and on our behalf is powerful and that's why just so you know the gospel will always be front and center to what we do here that what we preach every week is in many ways the same sermon because every week what we're doing here is we're preaching the gospel some of you were with us last semester where we went through this Old Testament book called Nehemiah if you remember, what we talked about in Nehemiah was not how we can all go be Nehemiahs, right? What we talked about was God's plan for his people. How the book of Nehemiah shows us the gospel even in the Old Testament. And yes, there are all kinds of ways that we can learn from people in the Old Testament. But what we were preaching always then was the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ and how it changes us. That that is and will always be our focus here. Because that's consumed our vision. 
gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. I just want to unpack that only, only briefly for us this morning. And when we talk about the gospel being the power of God for salvation for all who believe, we're talking about salvation in three different senses. We've kind of touched on this before. So uh, the New Testament uses salvation in three main ways. It talks about salvation in, in the past tense. That salvation, our salvation, is a thing that's been accomplished for us. The theological term for that would be justification. And then it also talks about our salvation as this ongoing thing, that we are being saved. The, the theological word for that would be sanctification. And then the New Testament also talks about our salvation in a future sense. It says we will be saved. And you're like, well, I thought we are saved. I thought we were saved. Y- yes, it uses it in all three of those ways. And when it talks about the fact that we will be saved, it's talking about our glorification our assurance that before God, one day when he comes, when when Christ returns, when we stand before him in judgment, that on that day we will be vindicated through Jesus. And what Paul is telling us in this verse is that the power of the gospel is what saves us in all of those situations, in all of those places in our lives. That the fact that we have been saved, as we've talked about already, right, that that's based on the finished work of Christ. It's something that has been done for us not based on anything we have done, anything we could add to the work of Christ, it's been finished. And that it's been accomplished, that the power of God has accomplished it for us, oh friends, that invites us into so much rest, doesn't it? That because it's been done, it means there's nothing more I can do, which means I am not working in my life to earn anything from God, and I can be at rest that you can be at rest in your life. That you have peace with God. That that's true about you if you are in Christ. You don't have to do something to get that peace. That peace is already yours with God. That all the blessings of God, all the promises of God are yes for you in Jesus Christ and there is nothing you can do to take those things away and there's nothing you you can do to get more of them. That that's true because our salvation has been accomplished by the power of God, not in our own power. It even means that sometimes, you know, we talk about uh, that it feels like God is far away. What do I need to do to get closer to God? There is nothing you can do to be closer to God. That he is always with you. That that's true. And that's true for you because our salvation has already been accomplished. And the power of God for our salvation is true in our ongoing Christian life. I think sometimes we have this idea that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of of the power of God is what has saved us, but then it's our power that makes us better and makes us more like Jesus. Like Like Jesus is somehow like our football coach and he's kind of gotten us all into a room and he's given us a big pep talk. Hey, think about what I did for you. I've given you everything you need. Now get out there and show me what you got, you know? Really prove it now, guys. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that it is God's power that continues to work in us to make us more like Jesus. 
And it allows us to pursue being conformed to his image then in a totally different way, not out of self-righteousness of what I'm trying to prove to myself or to other people, but with the freedom and the joy that comes from knowing that it is God who works in us for his good pleasure. I don't know about you. For me, that has been a radical reorientation in the way that I think about my Christian life. But it's that kind of living that allows us to engage in this practice even of repentance knowing that it's God's power that's working in me to make me more like Jesus allows me to see the places in my life where I have failed to live up to that. I don't have to be afraid of seeing those places because I know that God's power is big enough even for those things in my life. That it makes us, that it's God's power that works in us to make us more like him allows us to be a hopeful people. And that it's God's power that works in us that promises us that we'll be brought to glory, brought into this new heavens and a new earth. That that fills us with purpose even now as we live and work uh, on this earth. Because what it promises us, what it means is that, that God's power is at work in you as you are out in Nashville living and loving and doing your daily life. And that the work that you are doing the time and the love and the care that you are investing, that it matters, that it's worth it, and that into eternity, into the new heavens and the new earth, that it'll pay off in some way. Because it's, it's his power that's working in you, and it's his power that's gonna bring that new heavens and a new earth into our reality. And so then that frees us from the, from the lie that we're gonna be able to make this world a utopia on our own. there's so many systems of the world that would, that would lead us to believe that. Hey, if you just work a little bit harder, if we can all just get on the page with this agenda, if we can all just vote for the right person, then finally heaven will come to earth. And what that eventually leads to uh, is us throwing our hands up and being hopeless. Because what life will prove out over and over and over again is that that utopia is only a thing that can be brought by the power of God. That doesn't make us despondent, but allows us to have realism also about the work that we're engaging in. To know that it's the power of God that's working in and through us, it's the power of God that allows us to be hopeful for the world that it's coming, and it's the power of God that allows us to maintain that hope even when it seems like the world around us is falling apart. But that's good news, that it is the power of God is at work in the gospel. And because of that, we get to say like Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is that ever hard for you to say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Or let's put it in a different way that doesn't have so many negatives in it. Do you ever feel ashamed of the gospel? Do you ever feel like you uh, don't want people to know that you're a Christian? And like maybe you're not gonna lie if they ask you about it, right? But like, I'm not gonna wear, you know, I'm not gonna like broadcast it. Does anybody ever feel like that? Yeah, 
Can I just say, first of all, um, you are in good company because Paul apparently has some experience with that feeling because he knows enough to declare to us, I'm not ashamed of it. That he's inviting us in to something different. And I'm so thankful for that because it's, it's really horrible to have this thing that we say occupies our whole vision, which is the love and the grace of Jesus, and be ashamed of this thing that we also believe defines our life. That's a horrible way to live, isn't it? That we're trying to hide something that also we're trying to have dominate our lives? That's an untenable way of living. You can't live long like that without becoming deformed or misshapen as a person and in your heart. And what Paul's inviting us into, into here is a different, a freer way of living. So what does it mean? How do we, how do we grow in not being ashamed of the gospel? I think what a lot of us do is we just shame ourselves for it, right? I will shame myself for how ashamed I am and hope that that's gonna get me out of it. Duh, I shouldn't feel that way, come on. No, anybody else? Can I get an amen? Okay. So I've been thinking about this week, praying about this week. Lord, how do we deal with that shame that we can feel because of the gospel uh, in a way that doesn't just shame us for feeling the shame? Okay, so to help us get there, I want to talk for a second about Bitcoin. Just imagine for a minute yeah, that gets everybody awake, huh? Talk about that more often. Uh, so just imagine that you had bought uh, Bitcoin when it was $5 a coin. I have no idea when that was, but there was a time when that was true, okay? Let's say you had invested $1,000 in Bitcoin when Bitcoin was $5 a coin. Do you know how much money you would have now? I don't know, that's a lot of math. I think it's somewhere around two million, four million, four million dollars? Well, it depends on how much Bitcoin is worth today, which fluctuates wildly. You would be a millionaire is the point of what we're saying, okay? You would have a lot of money. If you had made that investment, however many years ago, would you be ashamed of telling people that you had made that investment now? Or would you be proud of it? Proud of it, right? You would be, you would be broadcasting that, you would hear, all of your friends would hear about it nonstop. Ugh. What a, how brilliant you were that you invested in Bitcoin. And the reason that you would, be, uh, you would be confident in sharing it is that everybody else now has recognized how valuable Bitcoin actually is. So what would make you not ashamed is the fact that other people see the value in what you have. Okay, but, but here's kind of the dark underside of that, is that it's only valuable because other people think it's valuable that there is nothing intrinsically valuable about a Bitcoin, right? The only reason it has the value that it has and the reason that it fluctuates so wildly is because people's confidence in its value fluctuates so wildly. Which in a weird way is also true about any kind of money, which is very disorienting, but we don't have to get into that, okay? That's some monetary theory, whoa. And because of the world, the commodified world that we lived in, that we live in, 
where everything is for sale, where everything in our lives can be bought and sold, that is the primary way that we think about value, is by what other people would pay for what we have, by how much other people value what we have. What we lack the category for is something that is in, that is in and of itself valuable. What we lack the category for is something that is intrinsically valuable. Okay. So just think about this coffee mug with me, okay? I think this is a pretty cool mug, personally. And I want you to imagine with me that you came over to my house and you said, oh, I also think that's a cool mug. Uh, I'll, I'll give you $5 for it. And I would say, oh, no, I really like this mug. I think it's worth more than $5. And you say, okay, okay. Well, I will give you, um, I'll pay you $100 for that mug. You know, I think I'm going to keep it. I'm like, oh, well, you must think it's a really cool mug, right? What if you offer me $1,000 for it? And I was like, no, I really like this mug. What are you going to start to wonder? Like, what is it about this mug that makes it so valuable to him? There's got to be some kind of intrinsic worth, something that I find valuable about this mug. Maybe something you're not even seeing if I'm not willing to pay, take $1,000 for it. What if you offered me a million dollars for this mug? What if you offered me uh, a Bitcoin for the mug, right? And I still said, no, I don't want it. You're like, wh who made the mug, right? What art, did Picasso make mugs I didn't know about? What makes this mug so special, so valuable? I will say what makes this mug valuable to me is that uh, this was a mug my grandma used. And if you guys have been here for a while, you've heard me talk about how much I love my grandma. And she passed away a few years ago, and this is what I got to take from her house. And I love drinking coffee out of it because it reminds me of her. There's something about this mug that to me is intrinsically valuable. That when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about something that, is in, that has value in and of itself. And Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew talks about it as a pearl hidden in a field. That someone would go and sell all of his possessions to be able to buy that pearl because he finds that pearl valuable. And we hear that parable and we think, well, it must be a very valuable pearl. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to help you realize how foolish everyone else would think that person was for selling all that he had to buy a pearl. You can't eat a pearl, right? You can't live in a pearl. You can't drive a pearl. No, but that was so valuable to the person who bought it that he would sell everything for it. That that is the way that we would come to value the gospel because it is in and of itself an intrinsically valuable thing. So we become less ashamed of it, not by, not by beating ourselves up for feeling shame about it, but by coming to realize more and more by seeing the value in what we've been given. And what is so great about that is that it finally frees us from all of the shame that we feel about how other Christians represent the gospel. Because when we say we're ashamed of the gospel, isn't that so often what we're talking about? That we're ashamed of what other people have done with the gospel? I can give you, just in the last, however, five years, so many examples 
of the ways that the gospel has been used in this world that I'm ashamed of. The ways it's been used for, a prop for political power, right? the ways that it's been used to justify racism in this country, the way that people who have identified themselves as ministers of the gospel have misused and abused their power. Those are shameful things, absolutely. But what can be so often true for us is that we can become so focused on trying to prove to ourselves and to everybody else that we're not like those Christians that what we forget is how valuable the gospel itself is. That we turn our focus away from this thing that has intrinsic value in itself and give all of our attention to something else. And so the call of this passage is, is that we would come to find the gospel more and more valuable and beautiful in and of itself. And guys, that is so critical for what we want to see happen as a church here in East, Na East Nashville, isn't it? Because there is a reason that we are doing church here. There are a lot of reasons. I think there are a lot of reasons, at least. One of them is that I want to see, that we want to see, a thriving gospel community here in our neighborhood. Because if you have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you will probably drive a long distance to find a church, right? You could go to church in Brentwood if you wanted to. It would be a long way, but you could do it. You would do it. But what, what we want is a place where we can invite our neighbors to say, hey, would you come and see this thing that I believe has so much value? Would you come and be a part of it with me? Do you want to come and look at it with me? Do you want to come and hear about it with me? And we want those people to be able to do that in a place that's right in their neighborhood. That the barriers to doing that would be as low as possible. That we could say, come down the street. I always tell people it's mostly across from Grill Shack. You know, it's just down. Oh, right. Okay, I know where that is that we want a thriving gospel community here in our community where people can come and look at and hear about and celebrate and be introduced to this gospel that we believe has so much value in and of itself. And for us to, to, to witness to that or to proclaim that or to let people see that we find it valuable, requires us to, to put down the shame and to lean into the value that it has. Because there are always going to be people who think that selling all that we have to buy that pearl is a foolish thing. Paul tells us that. Jesus tells us that. And they won't just think that it's foolish. They'll be opposed to it. That what it will draw out of people is opposition. What it will draw out of people even sometimes is ridicule. And it doesn't matter how much you are not like all of those other Christians because at, at some level, at, at the base level, the gospel itself, uh, it offends people. And it offends people in its radical declaration that we are all equal before the face of God. There is no gift that you have. There is no skill that you have. There is no wisdom that you have. There is no beauty that you have or that I have that makes us uh, different than the people around us. That we are all left on our own, radically hopeless in front of God. 
that there's no group that you can be a part of, there's no set of beliefs that you can have, there's no political party that you can identify yourself with that will make you more acceptable to God. That all of the human ways that we try to put other people down and lift ourselves up, that those are all hopeless in front of God. Paul says this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. gets me every time. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love what Paul says there. He says, stop, stop trying to puff yourselves up. Just acknowledge who you are before God, that God has chosen the weak, the foolish, the unwise, the despised. That's us. And he's saying we get to celebrate in that before God because as much as we are all equal before God, uh, that the, the, the gospel hope and message has been equally held out to us all. And that for us, it has become the power of salvation because we believe. Not because we're so amazing, but because of what our God has done for us. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Our hope and prayer for us as a congregation, our vision as a congregation, is that we would become individual people and a community of people who are known not by the ways that we puff ourselves up, but, but by the ways that in, in weakness and in dying to, to self, we point people um, to this gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe has infinite value. That's our vision and our hope as a congregation. If you would, pray with me. Father, we ask that, uh, that you would grow in our hearts, Lord, the conviction that uh, your gospel is infinitely worthwhile. Lord, and that we would find the gospel beautiful, that we would find you beautiful and worthy of our worship. Lord, out of gratefulness for the fact that you have found us worthy of your love. Lord, that you uh, sold everything to come and find us, to buy us because you found us uh, to be worthy of great, of great love. We pray that you would be capturing, uh, capturing us not by getting more information into our minds, God, but, but that you would be changing our hearts, that in realizing how much we are loved, Lord, uh, the vision for you and for your gospel would come to consume us as individual people and as a community. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.